Good morning. It's uh, maybe a relief as you realize that we open our Bible today to Second Peter, and uh, there's two more books, and then we'll be done uh, the journey through the entire Bible, Sunday by Sunday. I know that, that I have grown in my knowledge of Jesus Christ through this time, and I hope that you have as well. Um, as we looked at the New Testament, I tried to put the, the books in uh, somewhat of a chronological order, rather than the order they occur in your, in your Bibles. And uh, when we get to Second Peter, we, we become very aware that we are approaching the end of the New Testament period in history. We've already... Uh, gone beyond where the book of Acts ends its narrative now for a few a few of these letters. And Second uh, Peter, according to church tradition, which is reasonable to believe, uh, was written in the year 67 or 66. And according to church tradition, on June 8th, the year 67, both Peter and Paul were martyred in Rome on the same day together. And... Um, so it's sobering to think that he probably wrote this letter and then died within the same year for Christ. When we think about the New Testament period, um, and we think about the things that these authors wrote and uh, whether or not we believe them and follow them, um, it is important to think about church tradition. And uh, as, as we know, uh, Paul and, and to some extent Peter were dis discipled many people that we have the names of in our New Testament, the next generation of leaders. And two of the ones that perhaps we're most familiar with because we have books in our Bible that bear their names are Timothy and Titus, uh, a couple of the young men, but there was, there's many others mentioned in our, in our Bibles, in the book of Acts in particular, but also in the greetings, in the letters, uh, that were the next generation of leaders. Now as far as we... As we have record of, the, the next generation uh, either didn't write much or none of their writings survived uh, till today. So we don't have copies of things that, that these men uh, and women wrote. Uh, but the next generation after that, the, the leaders that Timothy and Titus and their generation mentored and brought into leadership after them, did write things that survive copies of till today. And so those people are referred to as the early church fathers. I'm not going to get into that period of history, but, but you, if you are a, a Bible reader, a Bible believer, it, it would do you well to, to, to do some looking into those, those early, early leaders in the church uh, and how they looked at the Bible and how they read it and interpreted it. But the reason I bring it up is because we are coming to the end of this period of history uh, that is recorded in the scriptures, and, um, and it kind of bears into some of what I want to say a little bit later on here in Timothy, I mean in Peter, in Second Peter. Because if you think about um, verifying a story, I think every one of you, maybe not, maybe some of you don't know your families well enough, but, but most of you, if not every one of you, could tell us a story about something that happened to your great-grandfather or your great-grandmother. Perhaps it's a story of World War I or World War II, or maybe it's something about the, the Great Depression, the 30s in the prairies, or, or maybe it's something entirely different. But, but I think most of you, if not all of you, could tell us a story that, that is something that happened in your family history uh, in, in the context of your great-grandparents. And if you told me that story and I said, well, how do you know it's true? You would say, well, why would you even question that? 
this happened to my great-grandfather. I know it's true. It's because you trust the source. And so when we look about at biblical history here, we have this same thing. It's spiritual grandparents. But Peter and Paul and the other apostles were the, were the founders of the Christian faith. They, they moved the... I mean, Jesus was the author, uh, but these men were the disciples of Jesus Christ. They saw these things with their own eyes, heard them with their own ears, and, and touched them with their own hands. And then they passed them on to the next generation. And we don't have writings from the next generation, but we do have writings from the one after that. And so those early church fathers would have been, well, what do you mean it's, I'm making this story up? It was my spiritual great-grandparents who saw it with their own eyes. And that's, the, that's the, the next stage in the history. And so um, as we come to the end of the New Testament period, we, we think about these things. And we think about the seriousness of, of uh, Paul writing his last letters, knowing he's about to, near the end, uh, poured out like an offering, he says. And, and Peter here writing his, his uh, second letter that that. The Holy Spirit inspired, I assume he wrote other things, but the Holy Spirit inspired these two. And uh, we've passed them on down to today. And, um, and he must have been aware that the end is, is about to come. And, and he writes this kind of as a, as a last testament to the churches that he was so loved so much and poured his life into. And uh, he writes right at the very beginning the statement that, that I'm taking as our theme for today. In Second Peter, God says, I have given you everything you need for a godly life. He doesn't say you can earn everything you need or, or, or you have in, of, in and of yourself everything. No, he says, God says, I have given you what you need for a godly life. And there's a, there's a sense in which we can say then, well, therefore there's no excuse, is there, if I'm not living a godly life, if God has given me what I need to achieve that. Uh, so let's read it in its, in its bigger context and take a few notes. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. See, I'm just quoting straight out of it, but that's kind of the statement that the, a lot of the rest of the, the letter flows from. He goes on, We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. In view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence, and moral excellence with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with patient endurance, and patient endurance with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love for everyone. The more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just a few things I want to notice here. Uh, first of all, um, a godly life is presented to us here as the goal of life. 
If you've ever, ever wondered, well, what am I living for? What am I trying to achieve on this, in this world? What, what is it that I'm aiming my life at? Well, here's Peter's declaration. You're aiming your life, if you're aiming your life correctly, at godliness. And this is really just a reiteration of what goes all the way back if you followed through the books as we've gone through them to Genesis in the very beginning. We were created to be images of God, to be, to, to be an expression of God's character and reality in this world. And so it hasn't changed all the way from the beginning till when Peter writes this until t- till today. The purpose of life, the thing that gives your life meaning, the thing that gives you something to strive towards with, with all of your being and makes the struggles of life worthwhile is this, this process of becoming godly. How do you know if you've achieved what God put you, for, you here for? Well, have you become godly? Have you been living a more and more godly life. That's the goal. That's the purpose. So how do we do this? How do we become godly? And, and he, he just puts it there in such simple terms. All of this by coming to know Jesus. You don't become godly because you're so good at it. You don't become godly through your own effort. You become godly by increasing in your knowledge of Jesus Christ, by coming to know him. If you're seeking to be godly, but you don't know Jesus yet, you haven't turned your life over to Him, you haven't become a Christian, a follower of Jesus, it's not possible, it's not going to happen. And if you are a Christian, but you're not continuing to seek to know Him, this is the means by which we become godly, by coming to know Him. It's what Christian growth is all about. And then, and then this 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 absolutely jaw-dropping statement. These promises that enable you to share in the divine nature. That's the provision that He promises to us. He gives us everything we need to live a godly life. And what is it that He gives us? He enables you to participate in the divine nature. Now we, we could go, I'm, I, I, I want to move on to the rest of the letter, but, but we could go for, for days on this, couldn't we? He's talking about the Holy Spirit's indwelling. He's talking about the new birth. He's talking about all of these other themes that we've touched on here and there and we've gone into greater or lesser detail. And all of these come through knowing Jesus. All of these things. And when we share in the divine nature, then we will become like God. As he shares more of himself with us, as we get to know his son more intimately through his word. And this is, this is in fact the very, um, the very justification for this whole series. You remember, we started in Genesis, going book by book, on the premise that in order to know anybody, in order to have a relationship with anyone, they have to reveal something of themselves to you. If they stay closed, if they don't open up to you, you'll never get to know them. And it's no different with God. And God could have done anything. But He chose to open up to you in this book. He chose to reveal Himself to us here. As we open this book, we get to know Him. And as we get to know him, he shares his divine nature with us. And as he shares his divine nature with us, we receive everything we need to live a godly life. We call it discipleship. 
We call it church life. What is a godly life or how to, what does that look like? Well, just read the rest of these words and we're not going to reread them here, but there's a good, a good outline of what it means, what it looks like in practical terms to uh, become godly, more and more godly. In 2 Peter, God says, I have given you everything you need for a godly life. So that's sermon number one for today. But I, I have a little more I want to say, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into sermon number two. We could, um, we could picture it something like this, uh, where we have the, the swath of humanity walking a path of, of, uh, of earthly life. And then we have the example, I, I, I don't know if you can see it, but there's a guy here who stopped in front of the cross and a, and a guy here to kneel and pray, give his life over to Jesus, confess his sins and repent, turn to Jesus Christ in faith. And then we have, um, we have those who have gone through the water, perhaps the water of baptism, and are on the path towards godliness. And it's a glorious path, but it is sometimes steep. Um, what was that word, Lindsay? Well, she's gone with the kids. I'm not going to try and repeat it. But, but this is the picture that we have. And, and what, what this picture misses is something that Peter gets into here now and, and kind of spends the balance of his letter on. And that is, that, that is, as we are on this path towards godly living, sometimes it goes like that. Sometimes we stop becoming more godly. Sometimes we, we come to a place where we, we stop advancing and we start sliding back the other way. And that's a very serious matter. In fact, um, as, we, as we hit some kind of roadblock in our growth and as we stop advancing towards godliness, here's how, how Peter describes people that, that, that are like that. It's in, in chapter 2, verse, verse 15. They have wandered off the right road and followed the footsteps of Balaam, son of Borah, who loved to earn money by, by doing wrong. But Balaam stopped, was stopped from his mad course when his donkey rebuked him with a human voice. So let's just bring that story back to mind here for a moment. God's people camped near a walled city. The king of that city was afraid when he saw so many people camped nearby. He sent for a prophet named Balaam. Do something to make these people go away. So Balaam started off on his donkey to see what he could do.
Balaam started to beat the donkey to make it go. But the donkey said, Why are you beating me? You have made me look foolish. I wish I had a sword in my hand. I would kill you right now. But the donkey wasn't afraid. You have ridden me for years. Have I ever done this to you before? At this point, Balaam realized he was talking to a donkey. No. No, you haven't. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes to see the angel. Balaam quickly bowed face down on the ground. The angel spoke. God sent me to stop you from harming his people. If your donkey had not turned away, I would have killed you. Balaam was shocked. I have sinned against the Lord. I will not do this thing. And that's how God used a donkey to save his people. So I think they used a little uh, artistic license in that story, or maybe that's too bold, cartoon license. But, but it's the basic outline of the story. You can read uh, the, the actual story in the book of Numbers. But uh, Peter brings this story up to, to, to remind us the seriousness of, uh, of, of going astray from God. And, and he continues with these, with these, uh, these words in, in chapter 2, verse 21. Rather than being like Balaam, it would, be, it would be better if they had never known the way of righteousness than to follow it and then reject the command they, have, they were given to live a holy life. They prove the truth of this proverb. A dog returns to its vomit, and another says, a washed pig returns to the mud. He was seeing this happening in the churches. And he's writing them to warn them, to say it, it, it's, it would be better if you had never known Jesus than to know him and then reject his commands and go slide back the other way. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a dense letter. There's a lot packed into these few words uh, in, in, the, in the short chapters of Second Peter. And so I've, I've just decided to, to take three roadblocks or three off-ramps that people take sometimes in their faith. And they still uh, claim to be Christian and they still come to church and everything, but they kind of stop at one of these places and their, their path towards godliness is, is stalled or, or begins to slide away. So the first one is described to some extent in uh, chapter 1, verse 6. This is one thing that Peter was seeing and that I think we, we are tempted by as well. He writes, For we were not making up clever stories when you told, we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when we received honor and glory from God the Father. The voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, This is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Because of that experience, we have even greater confidence 
in the message proclaimed by the prophets. You must pay, pay close attention to what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place, like the day dawns and Christ the morning star shines in your hearts. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from the human initiative. No, these prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and spoke the Word of God. So what you see um, kind of in this, I've kind of pulled out just a few verses from this, but, but Peter's responding to a, to a challenge that says, those stories about Jesus and even from the prophets They're wonderful, beautiful stories that we want to live our life according to. They give us good moral guidance, but they didn't actually happen. They were made up. They were were created by people. And and Peter's coming against us and says, no, we saw this with our own eyes. Not only us, but the prophets all the way going back also were moved by the Holy Spirit when they recorded these events. They're real. They're not imaginary. Imaginary. And we see this coming to us today in, a, in, a, in at least a couple of different ways that I'm going to mention, and maybe you'll come up with more. But one of the ways that this, this uh, kind of thing that says, yeah, the Bible's great, we should live by it, but it didn't actually happen, is the arguments from what we might call scientism. And so uh, to use a really easy example, um, in God's word, it promises the Old Testament people that if they live according to his law, they'll defeat their enemies. And uh, one of the laws says don't eat pork. And we know now, because of science, what they didn't know then, is that that pork is probably more dangerous than, say, beef or or poultry in terms of causing you to be sick if you don't have proper refrigeration or inadequate cooking. I mean, we all all love a a rare beefsteak, but we don't really like to see uh, pink in our pork chops, do we? And so, and so if, if a whole population isn't eating pork, then it, it would stand to reason if their enemies are, are eating that all the time, they might be full of parasites and stuff, and when they meet in battle, who's going to be stronger? So, so that's just one little example of how kind of our current understanding of science uh, maybe, um, maybe uh, makes us question some of the Old Testament miracles. And, you know, I've, I've heard it explained that when Jesus walked on water, what actually happened is the wind had put up a sandbar and it was just below the surface and the disciples in their boat couldn't see it. But Jesus just walking on ankle deep on the sandbar and, and Peter, when he jumped out, missed the sandbar and Jesus pulled him up onto it. And, and of course, there's no, no way to verify or unverify that, but, but that's the kind of thing that happens. That's the kind of thing that people do. And, and it's, it can actually be fun and increase our, our understanding in some areas, and science definitely holds a lot of truth, but isn't, doesn't teach us the truth. And what often comes out of that kind of thinking is what, what, I, what we would refer to as mythologizing the biblical stories. And again, that's tricky because the biblical stories do act as mythology. They tell us the big story in which we can fit everything in the world and make sense of it. And that's what mythology does. But, but, it does, but by, by going that direction, we, we, we miss the fact or begin to ignore the fact that it, it really did happen. And so Jesus really did die. And he really was God. 
And he really did take our sins upon himself into Hades. And he really did rise from the dead and ascend into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of God, willing to send the Holy Spirit to those who believe and repent and turn from their sins. These are not imaginary tales. It's true. It really happens. And so what happens when we, when we kind of move in that direction is we, we lose our boldness, don't we? Because, okay, we'll just let, maybe I don't quite believe that it's all mythology and, and science can explain it all, but I'm just going to let that slide. I'm not going to get into the argument. But that reduces my ability then to, to truly live according to the truth and share it with others. I just want to fit in. I don't want to get ridiculed. I don't want to get into a difficult argument. And so I'll just let that slide and, 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 and it'll be okay. But Peter would have none of that. He said, no, we saw it with our own eyes. We were on the mountain when he ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of God. We heard the very voice of God in our own ears. And... Uh, and, uh, and so um, in our day, you know, I just kind of alluded to one of the arguments for the veracity or the truth of scripture the early church fathers wrote about these things and they were writing about things that their spiritual great grandparents saw and heard and so uh, so that's where that stands and we we can slide we can stop in our advance in godliness because we stop knowing jesus when we stop believing he is who he really is and, and so that can limit our growth. Another thing that, that was happening uh, in Peter's day that I think we're still tempted with is, is talked about here in these verses in chapter 3, verse 3 to 9. Okay, sorry about that. Let's go back to chapter 2, verse 5. And God did not spare the ancient world, except for Noah and the seven others in his family. Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgment. So God protected Noah, then he destroyed the world of ungodly people with a vast flood. Later God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and turned them into heaps of ash. He made them an example of what will happen to ungodly people. But God also rescued Lot out of Sodom because he was a righteous man who was sick of the shameful immorality of the wicked people around him. Yes, Lot was a righteous man who was tormented in his soul by the wickedness he saw and heard day after day. So you see, the Lord knows how to rescue godly people from their trials, even while keeping the wicked under punishment until, until the day of final judgment. So here we have um, something that I think still happens today. He, people were saying, um, that, you know, there, there really is not going to be a final reckoning. Hell's not real. Judgment, final judgment isn't real. God is loving. He demonstrated that to us in Jesus Christ. And so, so why are you so uptight, uptight and so put so much urgency on this idea of becoming a godly person, of walking down this path? I mean, just, just chill out. You know, you'll have time before, before you die to, to kind of repent. And so, so have a bit of a good time now as we go along. And, and this comes to us today in, in various different forms. Um, there's there's a, a phrase that, that I've heard a number of times and, and seen books and even read books and, and heard different kinds of preachers in the church saying things along the lines of, um, in the end, love wins. 
And what they're really saying, and I'm not going to go on and preach their messages here because they're, I believe they're false messages, but what they're really saying is, is yeah, all this stuff about judgment, it's just kind of like, like children's stories to scare you into living right, but it's not actually going to happen. God is loving and gracious. In the end, he will find a way to save all people. He wouldn't condemn the masses to hell just because they don't believe in his son. And another way that this comes to us in a, in a kind of a phraseology or a way of talking about Jesus that says, says if you just pray right, if you just, if you just say the right words, if you just name it and claim the promises, then, there, then, then God has to do what he said and follow through in your life. And what that does is that puts Jesus in the back seat and puts me in the driver's seat on the steering wheel and says, if I, just, if I just say the right words and believe the right things in exactly the right way according to how this preacher is telling me, then God is forced to do what I want. And that too is rampant in the church today, that kind of teaching. And it's a, it's a way of saying, no, I'm the judge, and I get to claim the rewards that I want in this life, rather than saying, I humbly accept the judgment of Jesus when he comes. And so I live according to the fact that there will be a judgment and he's in the driver's seat and I'm in the back seat. But he has given me great and mighty promises. If I get to know him, he will allow me through the Holy Spirit to share in the divine nature and he gives me all I need to escape the judgment by living a godly life. It's all a package of the gospel. That's what repentance and turning from our old way to the new way and new birth is all about. That's the story. And so um, the fear, sometimes the fear of being ridiculed by our peers around us in our society that has rejected the idea of judgment and hell keeps us from speaking about it ourselves, keeps us from believing it ourselves, and we start to doubt And when we doubt the words of Jesus, we're not going to know him the way we should. And our growth will be stunted and stalled. We're in danger of sliding back to the old path. And Peter is warning us. Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, What happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? For before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was created. They deliberately forget that God made the heavens long ago, and by the word of his command, he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up from fire, They are being kept for the day of judgment when the ungodly people will be destroyed. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promises, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. If it was easy for people in Peter's day, within the first generation of Jesus being alive, to think, well, maybe he's not really coming back after all, because he's sure taking a long time. 
How easy it for us, 2,000 years later, to think the same thing. Or maybe it's just not really going to happen. Or maybe, maybe we kind of believe it will happen, but it's just completely irrelevant to my life. And so we, we, we somehow justify or somehow excuse a stop in our advance towards godliness. We say, well, these things take a long time, so, so it's okay if I just focus on, on building uh, my own enjoyment of this life, my own bank account, my own retirement. If I seek some fun, uh, some, some pleasures that maybe aren't exactly according to God's law, but, but, but you know, I'll, I'll have time yet to get to it, to godliness. But a day is not like a thousand years to God, and a thousand years is like a day. And it could be today that that fire comes, that is, according to Peter, being stored up, just like the floodwaters were stored up before the flood. It could be today. And am I, when that day comes, will Jesus return, find me on that path? towards godliness. God is patient. He doesn't want to harm anyone. But he is true to his character. And his character is holy. And his character is sinless. And he will not wait forever. Before we go there... You know, it's one, it's one thing to think about Jesus' return in the final judgment, which is, which is true. But even, even if God remains patient, every one of us will meet our own end. Every one of our friends and family members will come to a day when they pass away, when they die, and their chances for repentance and my chances for repentance will be over. And that's a sobering thought. And we live, in a, we live in a culture that is doing everything possible to avoid that thought. Everything we possibly can. We hold out the promise that, that there's nothing you can encounter that our science can't cure. You can live forever. We know it's a lie, but we choose to believe it anyways. And our sick people are hidden away, far from us. And I'm not making comments about about what's happening currently, but it is true that there doesn't seem to be much of a concern that we can't even go visit them when they're dying. We'd rather turn forcefully away from the truth, from from the things that force us to think about judgment. And as a society, we just don't care. We'd rather avoid it. We'd rather do everything we can to just distract ourselves with all kinds of fun things and and all kinds of other things and and just not follow the, the very teaching of Jesus when he said, Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who look sickness and death and suffering straight in the face and cry their eyes out because of the torture and sadness of that reality. Because those people are the ones that will take this message seriously. Those people are the ones that will not allow these roadblocks to stand in their way of advancing towards godliness. The ones who mourn. The ones who go to the graveyard 
and confront their mortality and confront the reality of judgment. And Peter will have none of it in his day. And we should not either. A few weeks ago, we looked at 2 John, where John gave us kind of a, a line in the sand, as it were, to, 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 to think about who we reject and who we, who we accept. And, and he made the, the line, I think, a little farther than many of us are comfortable with. And he said, reject those who reject my son. Among those who accept my son, you can have a wide variety of disagreements and still be together and still have unity in the spirit. But this is where you draw the line. And as we look at these, these roadblocks that, that Peter has put up for us here or, or identified for us, we can see that in each of them, it's a way of rejecting his, the Son of God. Because when we, when we say the stories in the Bible are just made up, the resurrection didn't really happen. It's a good moral book that helps us live well, but it didn't actually happen. We're denying that Jesus is God and that he was raised from the dead. And when we say that, that the final reckoning will not actually happen, we're denying the very words of Jesus when he told us that it would. And when we say that, the, the, that Jesus is not returning, and that he will not return as a judge with fire, we're rejecting his very words and his nature crossing the line I hope you're one of the ones who has crossed over we can see we can see through the waters of baptism to repentance at the cross receiving these amazing divine promises of participation in the very nature of God And through that increasing knowledge of Jesus Christ as he shares more and more of his nature through his Holy Spirit as we walk in faith, we move on towards godliness. But if we allow these roadblocks to distract us, Peter is very clear. It is possible to stop in our advance, in our growth. And when we do, we run into danger of sliding onto the old road and nullifying or proving our repentance was never real in the first place. It, it comes across. I know like this second message is so heavy that we, we tend to forget the first one. Do you remember the first one? He has given you everything you need. You don't become godly on your own effort. You don't become godly because you have so much self-control and are such an amazing person that you can, you can live right just by, by deciding to. No, you become godly by repenting, by saying, I can't do it. By confessing your sin and, and seeking in God's word, in all of God's word, to know him day by day. And as you come to know him, he shares himself with you by faith through the Holy Spirit. And he gives you what you need to take the next step up the mountain, one step after the other. Don't go too fast. Don't go too slow. Just keep walking in that direction. So I'm going to give you a homework assignment as I close off here. The homework assignment is this. 
Ask somebody who's known you for a long time if you're more godly today than you were before. You pick the time frame. And I'm doing it that way because the people who've known you long know best. Maybe if you're a parent, you would have the nerve to say to your children, your adult children, you're safe. I'm not going to come down on you. I want to know the truth. Am I more godly now than I was when you were a teenager? And assure them, because they'll be scared to tell you. They'll either tell you a lie or they'll, they'll say, no, I don't want to have this conversation. They'll probably say, well, how would I know? Well, right there, first, Second Peter, the first chapter, the part we didn't reread, it, it, it gives a good description of what godliness looks like. Read that together. Have a little devotional. And say, am I, am I further along than I was? I'm not going to come down on you. Whatever you say, I'm going to listen. I'm going to take it to heart. And I'm going to think about it the next days. Or maybe you would honor your parents and go to your parents and say, am I more godly now when my kids are coming into their teen years than I was when they were first born? Have you observed anything? What an honor it would be for your parents to be invited back into your spiritual life to help you and guide you as you walk. That's how you honor your parents, one way. Maybe you have a friend, a brother or sister, who knows you, who's known you, what you were like and what you are like now. Because that's how we grow. That's how we come to know Jesus, together in conversation over his word. Praying together, reading together, considering together, taking these things seriously together. That's how we grow. That's how we come to know Jesus because Jesus is present to us in his body, the other Christians around us. And maybe you're someone who, who's, never, who's never made that first crossing. You've just never put your faith. You've never confessed your sins. You've never repented. We could call you up front here and pray with you. That would be amazing. But, but I'd far rather you have that prayer with someone you've been walking with. Do you have an aunt, a grandmother who's been praying for you for years that you would take that step? Phone them and say, I'm ready now. Lead me. Of course, you can come to the church if you don't have someone in your life who can lead you there. And maybe you'll, maybe you'll say to someone, a close friend, and say, you know, I've been pretending to be a Christian, but I've never really, I've never really taken that step. I want to do it now. And they're going to say, I don't know what to do with this question. Well, guess what? Open up the word. Explore it together. You can find it. Come to your pastor. Go to another friend. Learn how to have that conversation and pray those kind of prayers. So that's my homework for you today. The promises are, are almost beyond belief that God would share his divine nature with you and that in that you would have everything you need There's no excuse. He has already given you everything you need to live a godly life. But we we stop ourselves. We, We put that roadblock in the way. It's not his fault. The only way we can know for sure is if we talk about it with one another. Because other people can see what you can't see in your own life.
Would you have that conversation? I'm going to ask the music team to come back. We're going to meditate through song on the greatness of God. And I trust you'll be remembering the promises that he's given us to share his divine nature. What a, what a great God that would share of himself with us. And in that prayer, maybe think of a name. Who are you going to talk to? Who, who are you going to ask?